Can you all hear me? Evidently not. <laughs> I may have to adjust it there. Hi, John. They might need to, you might need to turn me up just a little. I can't re uh, get this crowd under control. Okay, okay. Is that better? The power of volume. If y'all will gather up, we'll, uh, I'll open this in prayer pretty quick. Grab a seat. And I'll, uh, I'll open us. <clears throat> Father God, uh, thank you for this, this beautiful morning and uh, thank you for gathering us together. Lord, we are anxious to hear and to study your word, and we thank you for it, Lord, and we thank you um, that you have given us such hope, Lord, and such comfort in it. Uh, Father, we pray that this time would honor you. We pray that we would be alert and we would be sober. Uh, when we would view things in the world with spiritual discernment, and we pray that... Uh, this day, uh, we would know you better. In Jesus Christ, amen. So I did not make it through the passage we were in last week to completion. And we're studying there, of course, the removal of uh, believers uh, at Christ's return, both living and dead. And so we still had two verses there to look at. I'm going to... In or, in, uh, in order to keep everything together, I'm just going to read it for context, the entire passage, and then we'll look at those two verses that we didn't get to, uh, 17 and 18. So if you'll turn 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to begin at verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay. So these last two verses, 17 and 18, they put the dead and the living in Christ, with Christ, in the air, in the clouds, not on the earth, okay? And we are to be with Jesus from that point and forevermore. 
Now, this is where the doctrinal meets the practical, okay? Comfort is what he, was what he leaves it with, and comfort is the practical part of this teaching. If this doesn't bring us comfort, what we just read, I, I really don't know what possibly could. Now, comfort means uh, not just consoling, but it means to instruct and to exhort, to teach and to talk about. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're talking about this fabulous passage that we've just read. This is phenomenal. Uh, the Thessalonian believers, when, when Paul wrote this to them, they were having a hard time, if you'll recall. They were being afflicted and persecuted. Some of the loved ones uh, had died and, and may have even been martyred in this short time since Paul had left them. But Paul has just reminded them that the Lord was coming, that He could come at any moment. Further, now Paul has explained to them that their dead loved ones who were believers would be resurrected and would actually precede the living by an instant or two. And then not only all of this, but as we get into chapter 5, which deals with judgment, it will affirm the removal of the church will come before this day of the, uh, day of the Lord that we're about to look at. So this is great news. Any comments? In between which two events? Okay, and so we're going to try to, there's a lot going on here, but what we've just seen is the beginning of all of this stuff, and that's, gonna, that's the removal of believers, or you know, which would be the church. And that's going to be the beginning. And, and so if you, if you know that these manuscripts didn't have any chapter breaks in them, we're going to lead right into chapter 5, and there's really no chapter break in the, in the thought that Paul has here. So, with that in mind, we're going to go to the next part. My, my uh, Bible says, calls it this section, the teaching concerning the day of the Lord. So, we're going to be looking at the day of the Lord next. This is going to be uh, chapter 5, and we're going, to, we're going to try to focus on verses 1 through 11 today and see how this fits together. So, I'm just going to go ahead and read the passage that is a unit of thought here. And then we'll start to, I'm going to give a little background after that, and then we'll start to look at it verse by verse, okay? So this is uh, concerning the day of the Lord. Verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains on a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, sober, excuse me, 
having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So as I said, this passage follows directly from the, patch, the passage on what we'll call the rapture. We're now talking about a new topic. The now here at the beginning of verse 1 is indicative of a new line of thought. But I, still, I think it's still in question as it follows. Uh, it's still in connection to the question of timing and sequence that the Thessalonians were, were asking Paul about through Timothy. Because it follows directly after chapter 4, the, the uh, passage on the rapture, I think it should be studied, studied together with that passage. And I think Paul here is continuing to answer some of the concerns of the Thessalonians. Basically, when would Jesus call up the believers, the saints, on the earth to meet the Lord in the air? So chapter 5, 1 through 11, is basically about the timing sequence or what happens after the church is removed. The first words uh, used, or in the first phrase there, we see the word epoch, epic or epoch, and that is an event or a time marked by an event that begins a new period or development. So we're going to look at a new development here as we go into chapter 5. So I think at this point, I would like to give some background on what we're calling the day of the Lord. Okay? First of all, it is a tremendous Old Testament doctrine. And there's a whole a lot of passages on it in the Old Testament. Uh, it's found also in numerous places in the New Testament. However, we would note that there's no mention of the rapture in the Old Testament. So they're not the same thing. The word day is uh, used in various ways uh, in Scripture. Uh, the word in Hebrew, you might know it as yom, Y-O-M, uh, and in Greek it's himera. Now, sometimes it's used only to refer to daylight. That is the hours of light between dawn and sunset in a normal 24-hour day. But many times it's used of a full 24-hour day. Now, let me, let me ask this. In the Jewish tradition, when does a 24-hour day begin? Sunset, so nobody's caught off guard in the evening. Uh, it, it begins at sunset. That's with approaching darkness and night. And then it proceeds to the light of morning and day. And again, it ends at sunset, again with approaching darkness. God himself established this pattern at creation. Turn to Genesis 1, and let's read verses 3 through 5. This is at the creation. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, 
and the darkness he called night. Listen, and there was evening and there was morning one day, or the first day. So we see that pattern established. Now sometimes when we use the word day, we're not talking about a 24-hour period, but we're talking about a period of time. Sometimes we'll use the figure of speech such as like in the day of my youth, which was a period of time. It was a pretty good while back, but it was a period of time. And this is really the way uh, that the day of the Lord is used here. Okay? It refers to an extended period of time, but it is unique in that its descriptives also have the characteristics of a 24-hour day. In other words, it's going to begin in darkness and then advance to a dawn and daylight, and then it's going to close with another period of darkness after the daylight passes. So what does the day of the Lord mean? What does it refer to? What does this time actually, what time period does it actually cover? So in the broad sense, uh, the general period, excuse me, the, the day of the Lord refers to the general period that we might hear talked about as the end times, okay, end times. But why this use the day of the Lord? On one hand, for people who are coming to faith in, in this present day in which we live, ever since uh, the day of Pentecost, when, when Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended, the time, we live in, the time we live in could be labeled a day of grace, or the day of grace. And this is basically the church age I'm talking about. Now, that, it doesn't mean that God hasn't dealt or extended His grace in, in previous times. Not at all. Many of His dealings with man from the Garden of Eden all the way to the present day have manifested the grace of God. It is there. But in this present age in which we live, God has singled out especially the doctrine of grace for display. What do I mean? Well, God has revealed grace as a basis for both salvation and Christian life, both. The Christian life was what we would call sanctification. Now, you remember what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor to us, those who don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. And it's through Jesus Christ, God's Son, who loved us and died for us. But when the believers, the church, are removed at the rapture, this present day of grace, in the particular sense that I'm speaking, will have ended, will have closed. Okay, So all of that is in relation to believers right now. What about unbelievers? Well, with regard to the majority of people uh, who refuse God's gracious offer or otherwise reject God and instead live for all that can be gotten out of this life, this present day or age could be labeled differently. It is a day of sin, of self-satisfaction and self-gratification and evil. And whether they realize it or not, <clears throat> They follow what uh, John 12, verse 31 calls the ruler of this world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this age. And Ephesians 2, 2 labels uh, this one the prince of the power of the air. And I'm talking about Satan. And that's whose control they're under. Now, ever since Adam and Eve, God's human creation has been in rebellion against him. 
Many even scoff at the idea of belief in God in our present age, and I'm sure you've experienced this with, those pe with people you've known. But one day, that is all going to change. The Lord is going to reveal himself, and he's going to again take an active role, an active invisible role, in the affairs of men and women. And initially, he's going to pour out his wrath and judgment on a God-rejecting world. And listen closely. He's going to again place Israel on the center stage of world events. So that's the darkness that, that this uh, day of the Lord begins in. The day of the Lord begins in judgment. That is darkness. It is a day of God's wrath. And there are dozens and dozens of passages in the Old Testament that deal with the day of the Lord as being wrath. Okay? Now, I've, what I've done is just put together a Word document in the, the interest of saving a little time to uh, put together just a few of these passages showing the day of the Lord as uh, God's wrath. If I can just find it. Here it is. These are scriptures dealing with the day of the Lord as a time of God's judgment and wrath. I've got uh, four, and I'm going to read them because I think they, they paint a very vivid picture of what lays ahead. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 11, says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every human heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. So I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their wrongdoing. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. This speaks of a great uh, and devastational judgment that's going to be manifest in the physical world with a, with a lot of cosmological effects associated with it. Joel, <coughs> I'll go next. <coughs> Excuse me. Joel 2.31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord is near for all the nations. Just as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. And then Zephaniah, which is a book almost entirely about judgment. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 15 the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. That day is a day of anger, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Who could want to be there? <laughs> I certainly don't. Uh, <clears throat> but wait. Because the day of the Lord is also seen in Scripture from another aspect as a time of deliverance and blessing after the judgment for, for mainly uh, with, with Israel in mind. 
And it's, this is where uh, it refers to as the millennial age or the, or the millennial kingdom that follows uh, the initial uh, tribulation of the uh, day of the Lord. Now, uh, at that time, Christ is going to rule on earth, physically rule on earth. And he's going to do it <coughs> Excuse me. from Jerusalem <coughs> and from David's throne. And now I've put together just a few uh, scriptures on this as well. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, scriptures now showing the day of the Lord proceeding into deliverance and blessings for Israel. And this would be the millennial age. Zephaniah, again, the uh, book that deals so much with the day of the Lord, it talks about it in this way, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 to 16. In that day you will feel no shame, because all of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me for then I will move from your midst your proud, arrogant ones, and you will never again be haughty on my, on my holy mountain. That's in Jerusalem. Oh, that's in Jerusalem, yes. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to frighten them. Won't that be great? Shout for joy, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, Israel. Rejoice and triumph with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will no longer fear disaster. In, the, in that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. And then Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 4. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. That's southern Israel. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for a security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful, the steadfast of mine. You will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Lastly, Isaiah 35, 1-5. The wilderness and the desert will rejoice, and the desert will shout for joy and blossom. Like a crocus it will blossom profusely and rejoice with joy and jubilation. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the exhausted and make the feeble strong. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The retribution of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened, and the ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped. So it's kind of a little different picture there, but this is a, a magnificent period that's, that's spoken of. And this is just a small sampling of what the Old Testament says about the day of the Lord. Now, in Revelation 20, we see that, that that millennium is going to end with another night of judgment. Uh, and let me read that for you just so you can tie it all together. Revelation 20, uh, verses 7 to 15. This is So we've had darkness at the beginning, light in the millennium, and we're going to end with the darkness again. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years, that's how long it lasts, are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, 
to gather them together for the war. The number of them was like the sand of the sea. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged about, from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this period, the day of the Lord, it includes several major events. One, it includes the beginning of that time, which is consistent with what we call the tribulation. Remember when we studied Daniel, it was that 70th week of Daniel when everything is going to be changed and made right. But it's a time of trouble. Uh, Jesus even referred to it in Matthew 24 and spoke of the great tribulation, which is probably the second portion of that time. That's one. Number two, the, uh, the second coming of Christ with his saints to establish his earthly kingdom. It's included in that. Number three, the, the earthly kingdom itself, the millennium, is included and then four, at the end of the millennium, as we just read, there's going to be a final rebellion, which leads to a great white throne judgment. And then that goes into uh, eternity, the inauguration of eternity. And Revelation 21 speaks of that, where a new heavens and a new earth are, are created. Okay. Now, of all these major events, the only one that appears to have some sort of preceding signs or something to look for is, is the one that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. And he... He uh, was speaking about signs about his coming. Uh, we'll look at that in a little bit. But the signs that he used were actually things that would be happening leading up to and into the tribulation itself. These were, these were destructive things that would be going on. So this is the background for the day of the Lord. It's a, it's a period of time. It covers aspects of several major events. And this is what Paul is talking to the Thessalonian believers about. So let's go back then to the text itself and look at the verses. Let's look at the first two verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2, and I'll just read. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So times and epics here. Are, uh, they can refer to general and specific times surrounding the day of the Lord. Now, re regarding the events of Christ's return, Jesus did make a statement to his disciples, and we find that in Acts chapter 1, verses 6, six and 7, where he basically told them it was not, not for them to know the times and the epics. Let me turn there real quick. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, So when they had come together, that's the disciples, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Okay, so they weren't to know. But then, and we go to the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus is speaking to the religious rulers, and he rebukes them. And he rebukes them because they could tell the weather, but they couldn't discern the times of the season that, uh, the seasons that they were here. They didn't understand the times. So let's look at that. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven, but he replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair, fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but, not, but cannot discern the signs of the times? So, yes, Porter. Exactly. You know, and Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he's looking out over the field in Luke, it says, because they did not know the day of, of his coming, basically. And so they had all the scriptures. I mean, why did, why did the uh, wise men look for Jesus at his birth? I mean, that was uh, Micah, because they knew he was going to be found in, in Bethlehem, Epaphra. Right. And he scolded them for not, not being discerning. And that was the religious rulers. That wasn't even the, the, the uh, believers. Okay. So this first two verses then leads me to a question. Two questions. He says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why does Paul say to the brethren they had no need regarding this topic for anything to be written to them? That's number one. And number two, then why does he write to them about it in the next verses? There must be a reason, right? Let's look at the first one. What do you think? So he's told them. That's right. That's all correct. But it doesn't matter because what you need to do is live in the light. There you go. That's why he wrote to them. That's why he wrote to them. But he told them they didn't they had no need of it. Now, that means 
with these eschatologies. They, their, their hope was complete, not in just his being saved at that time, right. but in his return. But he's saying, we've taught you this because this is the central message of our message, is our hope in Christ. Even however long that, that takes, we've taught yes. That's exactly right. That's right, exactly. And we're going to focus on faith, love, and hope of his return at the end. But that's exactly it. He, is anybody ever blown away by the things that he did teach them? I mean, we're, he's re, these are, we're reviewing things. It's like he taught this stuff. And we won't, you can't, it, it's hard to find churches that will teach these, these eschatological uh, t- topics. And yet, Paul had no problem. In fact, he's reviewing with them. It's what he's telling them. In verse 2, he said, You've no, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord you know, comes as a thief in the night. They already knew this. He's not, this is not a new topic. He's, he's reviewing with it. And they may not have all the sequence, the timing sequence, and I think that's what he's going to spend some time looking at. And you already read the key verse to it. We've not been appointed to wrath, but to salvation through Jesus Christ. Okay? So in, the one, in one way, in one sense, the answer to the question why they had no need was that they'd already heard about it. Now this group, remember, it was made up of uh, some Jews. Remember, Paul starts in the synagogue. Some Jews, mostly uh, heathen, uh, Gentiles, and some prominent women. Those are the three that, groups that were named in Acts 17. But of the Jews that were there, they would have you know, been very familiar with the term the day of the Lord. That's not, that was not something that would have been new to them. The whole, I mean, much of the Old Testament concerns that. And then I believe thirdly, and most importantly, and what you've already pointed out, Kevin, is that they're not going to be here for this. Okay, what they're studying right now, Paul had already taught them. They're not, if, if they were going to be here, if we're going to be here through the, through the day of the Lord, this, all this horrible stuff I just read about, uh, to you about, this would be the perfect time to tell us so that, you know, rather than comfort, we can get, you know, prepared and hunker down and buy, you know, six months supply of grain and, you know, build a, you know, a, a basement and all that kind of stuff. That's not what, they're told to comfort each other. All right, so that's significant. Okay. Now, as we go for here, let me just uh, point it up to your attention. Keep an eye, keep uh, cognizant of the pronouns as we go through here, you, we, they, them, okay, that kind of stuff, because that's who the message is directed to, to or uh, the meaning of the message is for, all right, so the pronouns are important here. Now, verse 2 also says that the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night, right? Now, Jesus never comes as a thief to his own. He doesn't operate that way. We're looking and waiting for Jesus to come. We have an expectation of him. And people don't expect when a thief is coming. I mean, otherwise they'd be better prepared, right? But this, this, this verse is saying that the period of the day of the Lord is going to, it will come and it will be completely unexpected, okay, when it comes. And it could come at any time. There's no, there's no date for this. It could come at any time. The entire world is going to be wholly un, unprepared. And I think this then relates back to that second question that I, that I asked, why Paul writes to them. If the Thessalonians, if they understood that their removal preceded 
this day of the Lord, which is also an anytime event, it would have added emphasis to what they were told to do, to be alert and to be sober and to be ready and to comfort one another, to teach one another, to build up one another. Okay, let's go back then to the text and we'll go to verse 3. We will not finish today, I promise you. Uh, <laughs> while they are saying peace and safety, here's that verse, while they are, while they are saying peace and sa safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Who are they? Porter. Anybody does not know the Lord. Unbelievers, I heard. That's who they are. Did you have another comment? A frequent, a frequent criticism you will hear uh, directed at a pre-tribulation removal of the church is that those who believe it must be really weak in their faith or that we aren't able to trust the Lord to be our protector during the time of the tribulation. Even though uh, Revelation makes it pretty clear that Christians are going to be martyred left and right and actually beheaded. And they view such a teaching merely as, and the word is escapism. Okay, escapism. Now, you know, finally, after years of studying this, this doctrine, and in view of this verse where it says, and they shall not escape, I've come out with my most intellectual response that I can muster. So what? So what? The, there is an implied corollary to this phrase, they will not escape, and they will not escape. The implied corollary is we will escape. We're not going to be there. And notice also, they're going to be saying peace and safety. There's going to be, in this world, there's going to be an air of confidence. And wallets and bank accounts are going to be looking good. And everybody's going to be fat and happy and unprepared. But the day will come, and it comes suddenly. It comes destructively, and it comes deceptively. And the picture I got to help me put my mind around the condition of the world do you remember when we studied Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar? Y'all recall that? And he is, uh, they're all, all these people are gathered in his castle in the city of Babylon. And the reason was the Persians had taken everything over up until that place, and they were all in one spot, but they were safe there, right? They had peace and safety. Because why? They had these magnificent walls that no one, I mean, they were, you could ride chariots across the width of them, and they were too high to climb, and they were manned. And why couldn't they come under the walls? Because the water flowed through there. All their water, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, stop them from having uh, gardens and food and all that. They had a water supply too. And they were, they were not worried in the least. They were partying. And they believed there was no way to penetrate the walls of the city. But what did the Persians do? They diverted, right, the, the canal system. And they came in under the walls. And, and uh, Belshazzar's feast turned into a nightmare for them at the destruction, right, at the end. They met the, and this is, this is a picture of the world when this begins to come down upon it. Well, security, uh, security comes with walled cities in, in the Scripture, and always uh, that's been attached to Israel, that walled city denotes a peace or a security. 
that you can take your eyes off of the watch, you know, and, and be okay for a while. So regarding their destruction, what is the, what is the figure that, that is used here? Labor pains. Labor pains. Where have we seen that comparison made before? Labor pains and destruction. You know, I, I read in Isaiah just a few minutes ago, Isaiah 8, it talked about the very thing, labor pains. Where else? It may be in Romans. But what I read was Isaiah 13, 8, and it showed labor pains. Now, Jesus, when he was asked in Matthew 24, he uses that term too. And he's, let me read it. Turn to uh, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8. Can't even read my little bitty writing. Three, three through eight. This is so Jesus, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?" He asked those questions, and Jesus answered and said to them, "See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars." And rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, and that is not yet the end. For the nations, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains, labor pains. Very good. Very good. You know, and what I understand about labor pains, you could probably fill a thimble with, but uh, they do. They begin suddenly, and they increase just what you said, frequency, intensity, and duration over time. And another thing is they are inescapable, and they are inevitable, all right? And this is the illustration that the Holy Spirit uses in Scripture frequently, <laughs> oh, I don't mean to do that. Let me look around. Uh, no, uh, childbirth is simple. Man. Uh, <laughs> believe me, I, it never, it, it did, I didn't feel a thing. Uh, <laughs> I held your hand great, didn't I? <laughs> but it's interesting. That is the, uh, I'm sorry, that's the illustration the Bible uses for this. So let's go back to, well, let's stop here. Uh, we're going to pick it up next time in verses 4 and 5 because this is, I'm thinking it's getting really good here and it's exciting. But uh, there's a reason for all of this. Remember, the, the, the doctrine that's being presented here, we don't want to get hung up on it. We want to look at the practical because that's what Paul is going to emphasize with the Thessalonians after he goes over all this stuff. There's, there's a reason for this. I do think he's telling them about this to be even more alert and ready and sober for, for his return. Jonathan, will you close us in prayer today, sir?